Now let's turn for our text uh, to the passage of Scripture that we read in the Gospel according to John and chapter 9. And towards the very end of the chapter, at verse 39, John 9 at verse 39, where Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now there are difficult things in this verse, and uh, the opening statement itself is quite a difficult one, in a way anyway, where our Lord says that he came into this world for judgment. Now, if you know your Bibles, as most of you do, um, that's a surprising statement to come across. The reason for that is because our Bibles associate judgment with Jesus' second coming, not his first coming. In other words, when he comes in his glory with the holy angels with him. Or as we sang in the psalm, when he comes to judge the earth, comes he. But we've always thought of his first coming as being very different from that. It's not a coming to judge the world, but a coming to save the world. In fact, the Lord himself seems to make that distinction very plain. Uh, earlier in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus says this, that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And uh, on other occasions too, he emphasizes the same thing. For example, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. So there's no word usually of judgment or condemnation in connection with his first coming. It's really quite straightforward, and as a rule of thumb, it's a good one. His first coming is to save, his second coming is to judge. But this seems to make a kind of exception to that. Here, judgment is associated with his first coming, for judgment I have come already into this world. So, I mean, the question arises, how are we to understand that? Well, I think really the answer is quite straightforward in the sense that how we respond to his first coming determines the form of judgment that will come our way at the second coming. In other words, there's no suspense involved when the judgment arrives at his second coming because the decision has already been made. If we have responded positively to his first coming, if we have believed, if we have trusted and followed, then we shall certainly be saved at the final judgment. If, on the other hand, we have not believed, if we have refused to follow, then we shall be lost or condemned at the great judgment at his second coming. So really, Christ 
is being presented before us all the time in the form of a judgment. He is a kind of touchstone. And as we journey on in life right now, we are journeying on either as a people being saved by him or a people being lost or perishing or under his condemnation. In other words, we have all responded and we are all presently being judged. We are judged already. We are either being saved or we are perishing. That's the tense of the verb that Paul uses to the Corinthians. We are perishing and under God's wrath. That helps us to understand the rest of the verse too. For judgment, he says, I have come into this world. And notice the effect of Christ's coming, that those who do not see may see they are responding positively and therefore will be delivered, and that those who see may be made blind. They are not responding positively. They are responding negatively and in a hostile way to Christ's coming, and therefore the second judgment will condemn them. So, as the blind and the seeing interact with Christ, and as Christ interacts with them, there are two different outcomes. The blind see, and the seeing are blinded. Now, I want to look at both these categories of people with you, the blind seeing and the seeing blinded. I want today and tonight, God willing, to look at the blind seeing. And then next week, uh, God willing, we'll look at the seeing being made blind, which is a far more solemn and difficult thing to consider. But uh, this morning and tonight, uh, let's look at the blind seeing. Now, these words, the words of our text, uh, like every word of scripture, they don't occur in a vacuum. They follow the events of chapter 9, where we see this spiritual principle here in operation. In other words, that passage that we read about the blind man born from birth, how he was healed, how the Jews responded to that, how the Pharisees responded to it, and so on. All these things indicate this principle in operation. We see Christ as a kind of touchstone. We see blind people seeing, and we see seeing people blinded. The blind man, of course, is the one who gets vision. The Pharisees, on the other hand, who are supposed to be the visionary guides of the people, they are supposed to be the theologians who see, they are supposed to be the people who understand. They are not just blind, but they are actually further blinded by this encounter. You'll notice they don't stay where they are. Nobody does. We never do. The gospel never leaves us as it finds us. As a man once said, Christ never leaves us as he finds us. We are either nearer him or further from him each time he visits us. You can be sure even after this service of worship today that the service will leave you either nearer to the kingdom of God or further from the kingdom of God. You are never the same before an encounter with Christ as you were before it. Never the same. So these Pharisees are not just blind, but they are further blinded. Now, to understand this blindness and vision properly, uh, what we need to do is just to look more closely at the chapter, which we'll 
try to do now with God's grace. The first thing to emphasize before we look at it properly at all is is a very simple but important thing. Although what we have here is obviously a physical miracle, there is a spiritual miracle taking place at the same time, or at least more or less at the same time. They might not be running quite in parallel with each other, but they are both taking place in the passage. A physical miracle of healing and a spiritual miracle of healing. And uh, the primary lessons being taught in this passage are spiritual lessons, obviously. Now, we would expect that because that's how miracles function anyway. I've pointed this out several times. It's important to remember it. Miracles are essentially visual aids in the preaching of the word. That's what they really are. Miracles are almost like uh, physical parables, really. They are conveying spiritual truth in an outward physical way. Just as when you listen to a parable, you trace a heavenly truth running through the parable, the same is true with the miracle. The miracles were designed not just to show the power of Christ. That's a very bold way of looking at a miracle. Not just to show his power, but to show his his way of healing, to, to show who he is and to show what he does. So these miracles are really uh, visual aids conveying spiritual truth in an outward physical way. And Christ makes clear that that's happening here because he refers to the blindness of the Pharisees. He says, he says I have come that those who don't see may see. Okay, well, that could refer to a physical thing. But what about when he says that those who see may be made blind? That's not a reference to anything physical at all. There was nobody being made physically blind by what took place there between the blind man and the Pharisees and Christ. Nobody. It's obvious that the reference there is to people who have some kind of spiritual vision actually being blinded. On the other hand, those who don't have it are given vision. So I'm just highlighting all that just to emphasize that I'm not spiritualizing a passage here. I'm, I'm not taking it and making it mean something that it doesn't, not at all. This passage is about deep spiritual lessons. It's about being saved and lost. It's not about seeing and not seeing. It's not about blindness and seeing. It's not about the power of God to help us to see in this world. It's about being saved and being lost. Issues of eternity, issues of salvation, so it's vital that we give proper attention to it. Now, the events begin as Christ passes by the blind man at the temple entrance, which was the place of begging. It's obvious why it was a place of begging. It, not just because it was a public place, but it was a public place where the public were likely to feel charitable. Uh, many people's consciences, I assume, would be bothering them as they are going to the house of God, so they are more likely to give charitably to a beggar. So they, they knew that that was the place to station themselves. But it so happens on this day that this man encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. He's well known there. Obviously, the disciples themselves know the man very well. And the fact about him is that he has been blind since birth. Now, the disciples' minds are operating on a more spiritual plane. 
And they ask a very important question. They ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's in verse 1 of the chapter. Now, although it's an important spiritual question, we have to be honest and say that we're not quite sure exactly what the disciples meant by that. It's easy enough to understand why the parents might have sinned in such a way that the man was born blind. In other words, being born blind would be some kind of judgment upon the parents. I'm not saying that that's how things work, but I'm just saying that 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 would be easy to understand. It's not so easy to understand why he involves them, why they involve the man himself. Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? How could the man sin? have anything to do with being born blind? Was it something to do with sinning in the womb? Um, Or was it, did they think that God somehow foresaw something in his life and therefore smote him with blindness before he was even born? I don't know. In a way, it's not important to know. What the disciples thought or may not have thought isn't all that important. What matters really is how the Lord responds. I'm sure you know um, from other passages in the scripture that the Lord warns us against making hasty conclusions about these things, especially when uh, sad things or difficult things come into the lives of people, that we, that we be very, very careful about making any inferences or drawing any conclusions about why these things are in their lives. The most notable example was when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed certain people. The Lord rebukes those who, who saw it as a judgment upon them. He said, far from that being the case, he said, it doesn't mean that they were worse sinners than anybody else, but he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, take it as a voice from God to all of you, that unless you repent, you will all similarly perish under the judgment of God. But the answer that the Lord gives here is a different one. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, the cause of this man's blindness is not his own sin, neither is it the sin of his parents, but rather that God's works should be seen in him. Put it in other words, God's purpose is to show my glory, Christ says, to show my glory by saving this man, by restoring his sight, saving his soul at this time and in this particular way. And doing so, not just for for his own benefit, but for the benefit of all who see and even all who read. I mean, it's not stretching it to say that uh, God permitted this man to be born blind for your sake here this morning. For your sake this morning, there's a real connection between this man being born blind and you listening to this sermon today. A real connection between these things. Now, Christ's answer isn't meant to answer all our questions about sin and suffering and disability and all these things. But it does highlight one or two things. It's worth noting that 
Christ is in effect saying here that there is a reason for pain and for affliction and physical disability and things like that. I mean, we often wonder why. I mean, that's what the disciples are saying, in effect. Why? Or who's responsible? Christ saying, nobody is responsible as such. But God so ordains it so as to reveal his own works through it. Uh, now, of course, we all know that there is a, a deep connection between suffering and sin. We can say quite bluntly, if there was no sin in this world, there never would have been any suffering. So there is certainly a connection. But the Lord warns us against seeing a simple cause and effect explanation for it all the time. That's not to be looked for. But a reason is always to be looked for. There is a reason. Even if God doesn't reveal that reason, this passage is telling us that there is a reason. God has his purpose in it. I mean, it's significant that Jesus doesn't say neither to this man nor his parents, nor anything. He doesn't say that. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. God does nothing without a purpose. God has a reason for everything that happens. He has a reason in it. You'll notice, second, that the reason has to do with his own glory. This man is born blind that the works of God should be revealed in him. So in all pain and affliction and disability, there is at least, at least the possibility that the glory of God can be revealed through these things. And if you look for the glory of God in it, you'll find it. You'll find the glory of God in your disability. You'll find the glory of God through your disability. And by the grace of God, you will turn these things into a positive. That's exactly what Christ does here. He passes by, he sees this man blind from birth, and he hears a call from God to heal this man. And by healing him, he reveals the glory of God. And uh, if, if we have an opportunity to do good, uh, either to the household of faith, or to those who are not of the household of faith. We should do that, because by giving that help, by giving that kindness, by giving a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, then that shows the love and the kindness of God to the people who need that help and who need that kindness. So although you may, um, you may be obsessed with the question, why are these people in need anyway? Why are these people sick anyway? Why are these people disabled anyway? You're to leave that question knowing that God has a reason for it and recognizing that one of the reasons is to be a test for yourself. Are you willing to help the helpless? Are you willing to show kindness to those who have received none in the name of God? So really there's a warning there not to get too bogged down with the ultimate cause of these things. It's a bit of a blind alley anyway. The fact is that they're there. They are there. The sicknesses, the sufferings, and the pains, they are all somehow connected to sin, but they are all opportunities to show the works of God to those and in those who need that help. And uh, you'll notice, by the way, how, how Christ responds. 
He says in verse 3, now the, the connection isn't very clear first. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So God, in other words, has placed this need there. It is a blind man who needs my help, and he has called me to supply that man's help. It's my opportunity to do it. It's my time to heal him, because I must work the works of God while it is day. The night is coming quickly when it's too late for me to work or too late for anybody to work. How we all need, by the way, just in the passing to take that to heart. We live sometimes as though days and weeks and months and years were endless. But it's a limited amount of time that we have. It's a limited amount of time. We're told in the scripture to redeem the time because the days are short. Buy every day back. In other words, every day is almost useless by default. It's going to be wasted in the service of sin and Satan. Buy it back for God. Redeem it and work the works of him who sent you while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I am here to bring light, to disperse light. And let that be true of you, his disciples, too. Uh, you are the light of the world, Christ said. Derivatively, of course, from himself. But you, like he, are the lights in this world. So work the works of the one who sent you while it is yet day. By the way, it's not just Christ's opportunity to reveal the works of God. It is also the blind man's opportunity. I mean, it's not difficult, it's not unfair, it's not illegitimate to speculate about how often he would have wondered about his own situation. Why have I been born blind? Why me? Why, why not only have I not received help, but why is there no possible help for me? Why, why am I born destined for a life of begging? And by the way, a blind man can have no other life in that culture, no other life. But suddenly, here is help. Jesus of Nazareth is actually passing him by. And instead of you too, can I say it respectively, but again, uh, respectfully, uh, but again, bluntly, bluntly, Instead of questioning why, uh, take the opportunity of salvation. You might be wrestling with uh, deep philosophical slash theological questions about who's saved and who's lost and how many are saved and how many are lost and how many opportunities did that man get and how, how many opportunities did this man get. But the, que the question for you is what you do with Jesus of Nazareth passing by yourself. And the fact is that even in the preaching of the word, he is passing by you today. What do you do with that? Now's your opportunity. So stop wondering and speculating and make use of it. Because Jesus of Nazareth is passing this man by and passing you. So in God's eternal purpose, in other words, the light of this world, which is, which is what Jesus refers to himself as, the light of this world is brought in God's providence to pass by a man who is surrounded in darkness, shrouded in darkness. And the result is the revelation of the glory of God. Now, the man's healing 
as a simple narrative is easy enough to understand as Christ told it. Christ moistens the earth with spittle to make a, a clay and he applies the clay to the man's eyes. He then tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which is outside the gate of the old city. Now, it's a journey. It's not much of a journey, but it's a journey the man was familiar enough with, blind as he was. So he sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash. The implication is that he just needs to wash his eyes. But of course, the real question for us is what the spiritual significance of all that actually is. What is it teaching us? And uh, I want to look at that for the rest of the, uh, the time today in a kind of general or theological sense. And tonight to turn it more around to the man himself. What were his own thoughts, uh, feelings, what were his convictions and how he came to faith and so on. But let's, let's take a step back and look at it uh, more theologically for the rest of our time. And the clue to understanding it properly like that lies in the actual pool of Siloam itself. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. You'll notice afterwards that uh, John tells us in brackets here that Siloam means sent. He tells us that. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, brackets, which is translated sent, closed brackets. Now the real question is, why tell us that? There are many, many place names in the scripture that were not told the meaning of. You can certainly work them out with a knowledge of either Greek or Hebrew. We're very rarely told what a place name meant unless it has a significance. And here we're led to its significance. It means sent. And the strange thing is that the passage around it is full of the word sent. This happens at the close of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which runs right back actually to chapter 7. At chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And everything that happens in chapters 7, 8, and 9 takes place around the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it's dominated by Jesus' teaching of himself as someone sent by God. Just to take uh, chapter 8, for example, and in verse 16, he says at the end of the verse that I am with the Father who sent me. The Father sent me. In verse 18, you have the same words. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. So God sends the Son to speak sends him to speak. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Verse 42, if God were your father, this was their great claim, of course, that they're descended from the right people, 
Plenty of people still claim that as a basis for salvation. We're descended from the right people. We belong to the right group. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And to take this emphasis on sending right down to our own chapter, you'll notice in chapter 9 here at verse 4, Christ uses the word again. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So there's a constant emphasis on Christ as sent. Now, if that's our key to understanding the passage with God's help, let's look at it a bit more closely. And first of all, let's take the clay that the Lord put on this man's eyes. Now, he made the clay with spit, and this isn't the first time uh, we're introduced to Christ spitting as part of healing. Now, um, some point to a belief that saliva has healing properties, and certainly it does. And it was used for eye treatments. Um, it certainly was. It was used for that. But was never used for blindness and certainly wasn't used for anybody who would uh, who was born blind from birth and you'll notice here that it's it's not the clay and the spit that heals the man anyway on the other occasions i think there's two other occasions on which christ spat the spit is applied directly to the eye and the person sees on this occasion that doesn't happen in fact, what's primarily important here is not the spit, but the clay itself. The, the Lord applies the spit to the clay, to the earth, to the dry earth, to make a clay that, that he applies onto the man's eyes. He, he puts darkness upon him. Uh, although he's already dark, he's already in the dark, he, he puts this symbol of blindness on his eyes. Now, the earth, the clay, is associated with the curse in the scripture. Um, even our Savior said on the cross, you brought me to the dust of death. He's quoting Psalm 22 there as he hangs on the cross. And that part of it in the middle of the psalm where the Savior says to his father, you have brought me to the dust of death, to the curse. And uh, of course that's, that's brought to its fullness when the, when the body is laid in the tomb. People say ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It reminds us of the curse. Now, the fact is that this man is asked to walk to the outside of the city, uh, to the pool. He's asked to walk there, again, as a kind of visual aid. This time he's not walking as a blind man. He, he's walking as a man who is visibly blind. He, he has thick visible clay on his eyes and I'm sure he must have been the subject of attention you can't walk past a crowd of people like that without people wondering what what is this man with these two dark patches on his eyes the fact is that that these two dark patches on his eyes are symbolic they they are speaking to us about the real nature of this man's blindness his real blindness is not natural, it's spiritual. That, of course, is 
a condition that we're all in, but just for now, this man's blindness is not so much natural as spiritual. His natural vision isn't his greatest need. Just as natural blindness is not his greatest problem. His greatest problem is his own sin. And this is externalized now in his appearance. The cursed red clay is over his eyes. Now, I'm not saying that the blind man knows that this is what's symbolized here right now. That, that doesn't actually matter. The timing of the miracle, uh, each stage of the miracle as it happens, that's really an irrelevance. The significance of these things will come home to the man later, and we'll see that tonight when we look at the man's experience and, and so on, and we see it more from his perspective. What matters now is how we are being led to see this. The, the significance of these things, not so much how he felt them and when he felt them. Thought and reflection and prayer will bring them home to him. But the lesson here being conveyed is that we are conceived in guiltiness and sin. That, that's why this man being born blind, being born blind, is significant at this point. We are sinners ourselves from birth. That's the human nature we inherited. And again, you know, there are a lot of pointless questions trying to work out, well, um, how exactly did we inherit the sinful nature? Or why are we born guilty? Or how are we born guilty? There are difficulties in connection with all that. But the fact of the matter is that the only human nature there is to get is one that is fallen and sinful now. When, when our first forefather, our great representative head sinned himself. He polluted human nature and it became sinful human nature. And that's the only one there is to inherit. Even the Lord Jesus Christ's own human nature had to be sanctified in the womb of the Virgin before he took it into union with himself. Human nature just is defiled and we need to do something about it. And again, instead of being caught up with exactly how the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us, or how the pollution of the nature comes to us, or how we are conceived in iniquity and sin. It's the fact that you need to deal with. God doesn't always see fit to explain every single fact, to in every single detail. That's not for this life. Some of it we can understand. We may even understand a lot of it. But it's the reality that matters. You are born a sinner and you are born guilty with a sinful nature that if it's allowed to develop as it is, will manifest its sinfulness. It's not as though it becomes sinful. It will just, like a flower, open up and reveal itself to be what it actually is. And the nature that you're born with is a sinful nature. That explains, and in fact, that is the only explanation for the sin that you see in everybody's life. If, if it wasn't inherited as a sinful nature, you would think that somebody somewhere would be without it. But no, nobody is. And our spiritual blindness is our greatest problem. Because of it, we can't even see the kingdom of God. The, this sickness that we've got is so bad that it prevents us from seeing the cure properly. So his, his clay on his eyes as he walks 
is preaching his true condition. And that helps us with the second part of his cleansing, which was to go to the pool of Siloam. He's got to go to the pool of Siloam. But what's he got to do there? And why? Well, there's two things about the pool that we need to know. There's first of all, its role in Israel's worship. And that comes through, interestingly, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which you'll remember is what has just taken place. And uh, in chapter 7 and 8, the events there are around the Feast of the Tabernacle. Now, Feast of Tabernacles, on the, on the last day or that great day of the feast, there was a ritual performed by the Jewish people. It wasn't actually commanded in the word of God, but it is something that, that they performed on the last day of the feast. They took water from the pool of Siloam and in a very solemn ceremony, they poured it out on the ground. And that was for the Jewish people a picture of the blessings that the Messiah would bring into the world. And they knew that the Old Testament prophesied of days of blessing when the Messiah would come, not just for themselves, uh, for themselves, but for the whole world, when the thirsty ground would become a pool. And um, in chapter 7, Christ observes them performing this ritual on the last day of the feast. If you just turn back in your Bible for a minute to chapter 7 of this same gospel and verse 37. Chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out. Now, we're not actually told that he does this at the point at which the pitcher of water is poured out, but it seems obvious to make that connection when this was done on the last day of the feast. Jesus cries out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Christ observes them performing this ceremony. And in their blindness, waiting for a coming Messiah who was standing right there in front of them. Blindness. Blindness. Not seeing. Not seeing the obvious. And Christ expounds the meaning of what they're doing. You there are pouring out a picture from the pool of Siloam to speak of life. Life from the pool bringing life to a cursed ground to make it fruitful. Well, he says, if any of you are thirsty, if any of you have barren, empty souls, come to me, the pool of Siloam, and drink. And then, he says, that out of your belly forevermore will flow rivers of living water. In other words, I will irrigate you. I will fructify you, make you fruitful, give you spiritual life. And of course, he does that through the Holy Spirit. The 
Water of Siloam, in other words, represents spiritual life. A spiritual life that comes exclusively from Christ. He is the source of it and comes through the dynamism of the Holy Spirit of God, who is the power of God. Spiritual life from Christ through the Spirit. That's what the Pool of Siloam represents. The name of the pool we noticed already, but we need to notice that too. Not just the role it played, but the name of it, sent. God sent his son for this purpose. God sent him to be like rain upon the moon earth. God sent him to irrigate, to make what was barren and dry fruitful. And in fact, God sent his spirit for exactly the same reason. In Galatians 4 and chapter 6, Paul tells us of these two great sendings from God. In the fullness of his time, first God sent forth his son. Then, almost immediately afterwards, at Pentecost, God sent forth his spirit. And these two great comings, these two great comings in state on official business, are brought before us here in the pool of Siloam. God sent his son to be the source of all spiritual life, which we receive through his Holy Spirit. But you'll notice here that the pool of Siloam, as well as giving life, it also washes. And Christ wants the man to know that. Now, again, I'm not saying he understands this while he's washing his eyes. That, again, timing doesn't matter here. Timing doesn't matter. But that's what it's meant to convey to us and indeed to him. The sin that blinds us is also the sin that defiles us. And you can't want to see without wanting to be cleansed. Your need for understanding must be coupled with a desire to be holy. And Christ and his Holy Spirit is the solution to that too. They are sent to us for that purpose sent. This man isn't just sent to the pool. The the pool has been sent for him. The water of life has been given there. It's a provision. God sent the Son. God sent the Spirit. So let's be clear about that today. I mean, wherever you are in relationship with God, God has moved towards you. God has moved towards you. God has, and he, he didn't need to. He didn't need to. You were the one who moved originally. But God has moved towards you. He has sent his son and he has sent his spirit. Every possible resource needed for your salvation is there in the pool of Siloam. Now you'll notice that although God sent the pool, he sent the son and sent the spirit, this man must go himself to the pool. You'll notice that. That's not unimportant in the passage. Jesus sends him to the pool, the pool, which means sent. In verse 7, he said to him, this is back in chapter 9 in our text, Jesus says to him, go wash in the pool, which is translated sent. So he went. He went because he was sent. He went because he was sent. And Christ was sent for you as a savior, but You must be sent to him as a sinner. And he is sending you. He is calling you. He's calling you and he's sending you. Go. The Holy Spirit is saying, go. Go to this Christ. 
He's telling you that in the preaching of the word right now. He is sending you to the Son as the source of all spiritual life. It's not enough for you to know that you're blind and unclean. Obviously, you've seen enough to know your own blindness. Well, that's good. It's good that you've seen enough to know your own blindness. But, But that doesn't mean that you see the way of salvation. If you don't see the way of salvation, ask. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ to show you the way of salvation. Ask him to show you what you must do. And you say, well, I've actually seen that much. I I know that I I need to just confess my sin and I need to believe in him. But, you know, there's so much more that I need to understand. I have so many questions. Right, now you tell me, do you expect to get these questions answered inside the kingdom or outside the kingdom? A very simple question. Do you expect the answers to to your questions to come to you inside a relationship with Christ or before you enter the relationship with Christ? Well, let me tell you right now that you get them inside the relationship with Christ. There are first things that need to be dealt with in the kingdom. There are foundational matters. You, You can't kind of suspend your entrance into the kingdom on condition that God answers your questions. In fact, there's a whole load of questions that most of us still have that that are not answered and likely not to be answered on this side. I expect the bulk of them to be answered on the other side, but I expect a significant number of them perhaps never to be answered at all. But does omniscience become a necessity for entering the kingdom of God? Is it not enough to know you're a sinner? Is it not enough to know that Christ is a saviour? Is it not enough to know that if you will wash yourself, you will see? Is it not enough to know that if you entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and go to the pool of Siloam, you will begin to see and understand as you don't see just now? You know enough. You don't need to know the mechanics of your car engine to get in it and drive it and arrive at your destination. Certainly, Uh, The more you know, the better, especially if you have a breakdown at some point. But the fact of the matter is, you probably know now all you need to know. Enough to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Not just to see, but to be clean. Go and wash yourself in the Jordan. That's what was said. The Naaman, and he went and he dipped himself in the Jordan so that he was clean like a newborn child. That's what happens to this man. It doesn't happen when the miracle happens. It happens as he reflects on it. That raises a few questions, which I want to see more from the man's perspective. How he comes to faith, when he comes to faith. Let's see more of these things tonight, God willing. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Let's close by singing that uh, great psalm of repentance that reminds us that our sin is woven into us from the beginning. Psalm 51, page 281 in the combined psalm book. 